Quest for Faith. I'm Stephanie Clinton, your introduction host. Today on the show, Shannon will be interviewing Dr. Steve Curtis, First Christian's music director. They will be talking about the history of some of our favorite Christmas carols. You're in for a real treat. But first, let's see what's coming up in the life of our church. Speaking of Christmas carols, the Millennial Group will be going caroling this Sunday afternoon, December 12th at 2.30 p.m. They will visit three assisted living homes in Norman, followed by some social time at the home of Steve and Janet Corley. If you're interested, please contact Tom Lida at the church or just meet the group at Silver Elm Estates at 2.30 on the 12th. Be ready to spread Christmas cheer. Moving along the generation timeline, the Gen X group is invited to lunch this Sunday, December 12th at noon after the second service at Gabarino's. Join us as we lament the forgotten generation and compare latchkey stories. Please RSVP to Shannon ASAP so she can make restaurant reservations. Flannel shirts and Doc Martens, optional. Also happening this Sunday, Baby Dedication Sunday. Easily one of my favorite Sundays of the year. If you have a new baby that was born this year, or you weren't able to participate last year because, well, you know why. Please dedicate, please contact David Spain ASAP because we want to see those chubby cheeks. The baby's chubby cheeks, not David's. Poinsettias to decorate the church sanctuary are still available for purchase. They are $14 each, and dedications on behalf of a loved one can be made. Simply contact the church office to purchase a poinsettia, and then take it home after the Christmas Eve service to enjoy. Speaking of Christmas Eve, this year, the church will offer two identical services, 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. For those of you with young children, the 4 p.m. service is just right. Trust me, I remember how hard it was to get little bodies into their Christmas finest and then to the church in time to get a good seat, all while happening right around dinner time. Then the fight to get everyone settled down and in bed before Santa came. Meltdowns were inevitable. So, this 4 p.m. service is for you. The rest of us can say a prayer for parents of littles and enjoy the reverent beauty of either service as we prepare our hearts for Christmas Day and give thanks that we don't have to assemble a tricycle at midnight. The Charm Group has some fun events planned. I'm telling you what, this group knows how to have a good time. Saturday, December 18th, is the annual Charm Christmas Party in the Church Fellowship Hall. Potluck lunch begins at noon, followed with Christmas songs and a visit from Santa. Please call Stephanie in the church office to let her know you will be joining the group. And then on Friday, December 31st, let's start enjoying New Year's Eve together with breakfast at 8 a.m. in the Church Fellowship Hall. Please bring an item to share. And now, enjoy this musical conversation with Dr. Curtis. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Quest for Faith podcast. We welcome today Dr. Stephen Curtis, who is First Christian's director of music. And he is, you all are in for a real treat today. He has uh, some information to give us about the history of some of our beloved 
carols. So we cannot wait to hear what he has to tell us. So I'll let him jump right in and and start. You have four carols you're going to talk to us about today. That's correct. Yeah. So jump right in. Okay. Um, Shannon chose four carols. <laughs> and just to let you know that she's the one that chose these. <laughs> and she chose four that are very, some are very old and some are relatively new. Uh, some uh, one uh, were known to have been written and performed on specific dates, and others were still a mystery. So the four carols that we're going to talk about uh, are Joy to the World, Silent Night, I Wonder as I Wander, and Angels We Have Heard on High. We're going to talk a little bit about Joy to the World first. But before we do that, I think it's very interesting the melody of joy to the world. Because those of you, and many of you know this, uh, if you take uh, a scale and a descending scale, it would be like, do, ti, la, so, fa, mi, re, do. Those are the exact notes of joy to the world, the Lord is come. So it's all it is is a scale that, that is uh, descending. And I think that's that's rather interesting because we just, you know, we sing it all the time, but don't even think about that. I wonder if that's why we like it so much. Uh, maybe. <laughs> Um, this one author called it an accidental classic. Uh, Joy to the World was not written as a Christmas carol. In its original form, it had nothing to do with Christmas. It wasn't even written to be a song. Isaac Watts, who is one of the great hymn writers of, the, of our church, uh, wrote one of his most famous hymns by accident. In 1719, Watts published a book of poems in which each poem was based on a psalm. But rather than just translate the old, original Old Testament text, he adjusted them to refer more explicitly to the work of Jesus as it has been revealed in the New Testament. The second half of this poem was slightly adapted and set to music to give us what has become one of the most famous of all Christmas carols. There are some texts in here that, that he expands upon a little bit, and I thought it might be interesting to know. And this, of course, is one author's idea, and not to say that this is uh, definitive or everyone believes this, but uh, the place that where it says, let every heart prepare him room, he says, the Holy Spirit miraculously transforms us through our relationship with Jesus. The line, let men their songs employ, this joy of God is not locked up in an isolated heart. It flows among us and transforms how we relate to one another. He comes to make his blessings flow, another line from the carol. How we live in the world should manifest the change the Spirit is working in us. Then the last line that we can talk about, he rules the world with truth and grace. As we learn to manifest the Spirit's work in our hearts, through the ways we live in the world, the portions of the world that are under our stewardship start to flourish more fully, not in a way that directly redeems people, because only personal regeneration can save a human being, but in a way that makes the world more like it should be and delivers intense experiences of God's joy to our neighbors. And this person was Greg Forrester, who wrote these things, and I thought it was interesting. Almost everything he talked about, he talked about uh, community, communal, um, what we can do for others and all that. So the next time that I hear Joy to the World, I'll think about all those references that uh, I, th I think make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's a statement on on who we are as a faith community and who we are 
outside of that community because we're a part of the community right. on the inside. Oh, very interesting. Right. Very uh, good. The, the second carol, and when we say carols, I also say carols slash hymns because they're in our hymnal and we sing them as hymns uh, during our services, but you know they, they are also carols. Um, Silent Night and the German, and this will make some sense later, Stille Nacht. And uh, of course, those of you that know German would know that that's Silent Night. But um, for those of you who don't, Stille is like still, and Nacht is awfully close to night. So a lot of words in German are very close to the words that we use. Uh, Stille Nacht, or Silent Night, was first performed on Christmas Eve, 1818, at St. Nicholas Parish Church in Obendorf a village in the Austrian Empire. Now, most of us know this story, and some of the, I, I read a number of sources, some of them didn't mention this, but uh, it said, let me see, uh, a young Catholic priest, Father Joseph Moore, had written the poem, Stille Nacht, in 1816. So here's an example of when we know something was written. Uh, the melody was composed by Franz Xavier Gruber, schoolmaster and organist in the nearby village. On Christmas Eve, 1818, Moore brought the words to Gruber and asked him to compose a melody and guitar accompaniment for that night's mass. After river flooding had possibly damaged the church organ, so they needed to have an instrument, so it was a, a, a guitar that they used. According to Gruber, an organ builder who serviced the instrument at the Obendorf Church was enamored with the song and he took it home with him to his, his village. From there, two traveling families of folk singers, the Strassers and the Rainiers, include, included the tune in their shows. The Rainiers were already singing it around Christmas 1819, so we're talking about just a year later, they were using it in their shows because it was so popular and people loved it. Uh, it made its first performance of the song in the U.S. in New York City in 1839, so a little over 20 years after it was first sung in, German, in Austria. Uh, by the 1840s, the melody changed slightly to become the version that is commonly played today. Uh, although Gruber was known to be the composer, many people assumed that the melody was composed by a famous composer, maybe attributed to Haydn, Mozart, or Beethoven. However, a manuscript, and I found this interesting because it's relatively recent, um, a manuscript was discovered in 1995 in Moore's handwriting and dated by research as around 1820. So we can pretty well think that that uh, was, was the, uh, the beginning of, of this. I have two very quick personal stories about this. When I was teaching music in a large junior high, 1,400 students in uh, St. Louis County, uh, we had huge Christmas concerts Sunday afternoons, and at times, since it was a large program and I had a lot of kids in there, we'd have twelve or 1,300 people there in attendance, which was, was always just great to start the Christmas season. And what I did was, um, at the end of every concert, we sang Silent Night and asked the, uh, the audience to join us. And then after we sang it, I had my students sing it in German since it was originally, of course, done in German. And so it was always a real treat. And when I hear Silent Night, I think back to those times. I also think about the fact that uh, we, we end our Christmas Eve service here with Silent Night right. because I think it is just, it's so beautiful and has so much meaning. My other story is uh, I went to school in uh, 
southeast Missouri in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. And there was a small town north of Cape Girardeau called Altenburg. I had befriended the banker from Altenburg because he came to a lot of my concerts and he came to talent shows. I did a lot of singing and talent shows and things with guitar and uh, he enjoyed my singing. And so he once invited me to the Altenburg church. It was a small little church and Altenburg was a community of German people. In other words, it was, I mean, predominantly German. And of course, I knew the people spoke German. So I went to this church and I sang some carols and some songs. I said, well, let's end with Silent Night. And <laughs> I, I asked them to sing it in German. And so all the people in this church that know German and spoke German sang along with me. And it was just very touching. That's powerful. It was. It really was. Oh, and wow. so now... Again, when, when we sing Silent Night, even here, I think back to that little church in Altenburg, Missouri, right. where uh, this gentleman uh, had invited me to come. Well, I know so. for, some, for some people, it's not Christmas until Silent Night is right. sung. That's kind of the benediction from our Christmas Eve to go and, and, right. and be centered for the day. And yeah. as we go out into the Silent Night, I mean, yeah. it just, yeah. there are so many, so many references and meanings. Yeah. Um, this third one is very different because it's much more recent. I wonder as I wonder, uh, is a Chris, Christian folk hymn typically performed as a Christmas carol? It was written by American folklorist and singer John Jacob Niles. When I was undergraduate school down there in Cape Girardeau, he came to our school and did a whole concert. And I'll, I'll never forget. I, I almost remember where I sat and because it was so... Um, wonderful to hear this and he was old at the time and he had dulcimers and he had other instruments and he sang many of the songs that he wrote and he wrote I Wonder As I Wander and I believe he even sang it that night. That's that's a place to be. I know. That's, I mean, nice. I, I felt yeah. I felt like I was, you know, a, a part of history because he was he was well known then. And if you look at a lot of folk songs, he, he wrote them. Mm. And um, and what uh, the the story of this is it had its origin in a song fragment collected by Niles uh, in July 16th of 1933. And I always find it interesting when they have the exact day <laughs> and, and year that, mm -hmm. that they know when this was done. Uh, while in a town in Appalachian, North Carolina, Niles attended a fundraising meeting held by evangelicals who had been ordered out of town by the police. <laughs> oh don't know exactly what they did. Uh, That's Niles, a different podcast, I think. <laughs> Niles wrote of hearing the song, and this is what Niles said. A girl stepped out to the edge of a little platform attached to the automobile. She began to sing. Her clothes were unbelievably dirty and ragged, and she, too, was unwashed. Her ash-blonde hair hung down in long skeins. But best of all, she was beautiful, and in her untutored way, she could sing. She smiled as she sang, smiled rather sadly, and sang only a single line of the song. The girl, named Annie Morgan, repeated the fragment seven times in exchange for a quarter per performance. Every time she sang it, they would give her a quarter, and Niles left with three lines of a verse. Based on this fragment, Niles composed the version of I Wonder As I Wander that is known today. Niles first performed the song on December 19, 1933, just a few months after he found it, at the John C. Campbell Folk School in Brasstown, North Carolina. It was originally published in Songs of the Hill Folk 
1934. Wow. Which I find fascinating because mm-hmm. um, this last one we talk about is very mysterious as to who wrote it, when it was written, um, and, and all that. But this one, we know exactly the day and, and mm-hmm. date mm-hmm. of when he heard the, the melody. And I can just picture that little girl singing. Right, uh, it's just, right. Um, my two fa- I have two favorite carols. Uh, I, I love Christmas carols in general. But uh, they are O Come, O Come, Emmanuel and Angels We Have Heard on High. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is my favorite because when I was in sixth grade, I sang in a children's choir at my church. And we sang a version of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel in that children's choir. And it's hard to explain, but even as a sixth grader, there was something about it that just grabbed me and and meant something to me that was so deep mm-hmm. that I remember we went to the Kroger store afterwards <laughs> mm-hmm. and went and went shopped after I got mm-hmm. out of church choir. It was after school. And I remember I was in the produce section and that tune just would not leave my head. And I was kind of singing softly to myself, you know. So that has a lot of meaning to me. And but also Angels We Have Heard on High has always been one of my favorites. And uh Angels We Have Heard on High is a song steeped in great mystery. Uh, This song seemingly appeared out of the air because the first to sing Angels We Have Heard on High lived in 19th century France. Many believe that it must have originated there. This Christmas song must have been penned by a person who had a professional knowledge of the Bible and an incredible gift for taking scripture and reshaping it into verse. A monk or a priest from the Catholic Church was more than likely responsible for writing Angels We Have Heard on High. It was first published in 1855 in the uh, French songbook. Records indicate that the song has been used in church masses for more than 50 years before. Today the song is sung just as it was 150 years ago. Yet, for maybe a thousand years or more before that, monks probably sang this same song, and they say song, but it was probably a tune, uh, uh, probably a chant, uh, as they celebrated the birth of the Savior. So it's been around. The, the music or the line has been around for a long time. Uh, the angel's visit to the lonely shepherd symbolizes that Christ came for all people. So, why is this carol of unknown origin remained so popular for so long? Though the tune, and this is one person's opinion, though the tune may be considered monotonous, the reason I think that they m- might think it's monotonous is that it's repetitive. Only uses five notes. And then, of course, we have the refrain, which is in Latin, mm-hmm. Glory and Excelsis. Mm-hmm. But I thought that was very interesting because I've never thought of it as being monotonous. I hadn't either. <laughs> it, it's it's, it's a, a, unlike Joy to the World, which is a whole octave, mm-hmm. eight notes. Mm-hmm. This is only five notes. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was rather interesting. Mm-hmm. While the simple text is read, it becomes obvious that few Christmas songs so fully describe the joy that the world felt when a Savior was born in Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. Uh, there can be no doubt that whoever wrote Angels We Have Heard on High not only believed the words found in the Bible, but relished that belief. So I just told Shannon before we started this, I was going to put her on the spot, and I would like her to tell me uh, what her favorite carols are and what memories those carols bring to her. I, the the first, when, I, when I'm when i asked that question or or 
are encouraged when we are encouraged to think about that question the first thing that comes to my mind is oh little town of bethlehem and when i was little we had on top of a i guess it was a hutch now that's that time is getting further and further away uh, but we had a little town set up and it was a little village and and I think it was made out of wood and and my brother and I we would kind of move it around and it was was set up with trees and just like a scene of a town and so in my child head I put a little town of Bethlehem in that town Mm. that was a little town of Bethlehem Uh and um, there's just something about the imagery of a little town a, a quiet sleepy town where something magnificent is is happening or about to happen or just happened and so i always picture that little setup that we had uh, and it was it was so fun to play with and and right now i'm not i'm not sure whatever happened to that so i'll have to get with my brother and find out where that where that little town is um so maybe i can can see it again uh, I, I really can't think of another one that is my favorite. Going back uh, to the first one mm-hmm, you talked about, mm-hmm. how old were you at the time? Oh, gosh, five, six, maybe. I find it interesting, and this is my plug. Uh, <laughs> I taught elementary, middle school, and high school music. Uh-huh. And I think sometimes we just don't realize how deep in mm-hmm. thought children are mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that really meant something to you and mm-hmm. me as a sixth grader hearing that tune right. meant something very special to me right. and so I, I i think back and you know even though we were quite young uh, that right. we still had uh, more adult-like uh, feelings right. and, and ideas well there are lots of books written about children being spiritual beings we just often don't have the language when we're that young or we feel it and and we enjoy it and we know it's good but we don't know how to Put it into big fancy terms right, <laughs> so we right. just say we like it well, uh, you started to say another yeah, one yeah well i'm trying to think of another one um it came upon a midnight clear is is kind of one that isn't all that popular but there's something about the tune that i really like and i'm not i'm not sure where that came from uh but but i think those two would be the ones if i had to pick those would be the ones that that really settle into me somehow <laughs> and 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 give me joy and a peace about the season. So I love well, those. I think that's what happens when I when I hear a carol. It usually elicits mm-hmm. some kind of a memory. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, just you know, growing up in St. Louis and and going to church and you know being uh, going to church with my grandmother on Christmas Eve and and the and the carols that were done and the hymns that we sang it was it's just very meaningful for me right and I'm and I'm sure people listening are saying oh yeah I have those memories of of Christmas Eve and Christmas in the church and uh, some people you know, have chosen even to have their wedding in the church during Christmas because it's so beautiful, <laughs> decorated, and, and all of the memories that, that come with them. So, so kids, if you're listening, sing, remember, <laughs> enjoy the, the hymns that you hear around church and, and uh, let them become part of you. Let them become part of your story. And, and tell us about it. Uh, well, we thank Steve so much for being here and for doing such good research on these very uh, beloved hymns. And we thank you all for joining us on this episode of Quest for Faith. And we will see you next time. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Thank you.